Welcome to another edition of the Making Money Show with the financial coach, Ron Hebert, retired portfolio manager. I'm Gord Whitehead, retired broadcaster. Okay, so I get to uh, I get to start this one with, a, with I think, the perfect lead-in. I watch a lot of golf on television. I'm a big golf fan. And I've noted over the years that, I, I don't know what it is, maybe it's the demographic that it, that it attracts, but the pharmaceutical companies spend a fortune advertising on golf broadcasts. They spend a fortune advertising, period, especially on television. And there's obviously a good reason for that. <laughs> you look at the demographic wins, and they're amazing. Globally, in the last 10 to 20 years, a billion people have come out of poverty. And one of the first things that you do when you come out of poverty is... Obviously, there's, there's important things like food and shelter, but after that, healthcare is right up there. And so typically, when you have some extra exposable income, you spend it on healthcare. And you look at the demographic wins in Japan, in Europe, in North America, and believe it or not, in China, because of their one-child policy, you've got one point two billion people in China that their incomes are going up and because they're not having kids they're having to save for their own health care they're living longer which means that they're spending a larger portion of their income on health care because you've got this bulge in the population that's getting older which should mean that over the longer term health care globally is going to be in a long-term bull market where we should see consistent growth year after year. So is the pharmaceutical sector one we should look at as an investor? I think, I think the obvious answer is yes, but as always, there are cautionary notes attached to that. I mean, if you look at the U.S., which is way over the top on most things, according to CBS, 70% of Americans take at least one prescription drug daily. 50% take at least two prescription drugs daily. A study by the Mayo Clinic showed that on average, their patients take more than five pharmaceuticals at any given time, and that 13% of the population is on antidepressants. I mean, you just think about that for a minute. Global drug usage by 2020 is going to be $1.4 trillion. That's an increase of 32% over, over the last five years. So this is, sector is growing enormously. Well, you have, what, 330 million people or whatever in the United States. If you do the 13% just on antidepressants, that's a big number right there. Those are huge numbers, Gord. And so with Europe and Asia starting to contribute to that, this sector has seen sales growth year after year after year. And there are some risks, and we'll, we'll get into those risks here in a, in a couple minutes, but any of those risks will bring prices down temporarily and should be viewed as dips to add to your positions over the long term. Because if you are like us and you view this as a long-term bull market, the dips are to be added to because this sector with the population globally putting a lot of pressure on healthcare should see steady sales growth over time. And that's, I think, the, the raging debate, especially south of the border, about healthcare. Everybody, and it's the same thing here in Canada. We know how expensive 
healthcare can be. And, and obviously, the pharmaceutical component of healthcare is a big part of that, correct? Yes. And one of the reasons, well, there's two reasons it's a big part of that. Number one is because pills are easy to administer. You know, it's the, when you walk into a doctor's office, if he looks at you, scratches a prescription on a notepad, sticks it out to you and says, next, you're out of the office and he's on to the next patient. So it's viewed as an administratively easy way to provide healthcare services versus if you go in, you need an expensive procedure like surgery or, or repeated visits back to the doctor. And as well, you take a, you take a look at it and it doesn't tie up really expensive staff for long periods of time. So it's viewed as if you can come up with the right, right drug and prescribe it properly as a way to cut healthcare costs. And of course, that's the big drive right now because healthcare spending is one of the fastest growing cost items in most government's budgets. And the social pressure for them to continue to improve healthcare benefits is something that shows up and every politician has to be aware of it because it is very much a bread and butter item and if you're not providing proper health care it's going to hurt you in the voting booth. Okay let's go back then to the the easy fix of taking a pill which seems to be the the thought process here but to get that pill that deals with a particular medical issue to get that pill to market that's where the cost really starts to come into play, isn't it? And don't get me wrong, we're not uh, presenting a sunshine and fluffy pink clouds with silver linings uh, scenario here. There are risks that you have to pay attention to if you're going to invest in the pharmaceutical sector, and we're going to go through and itemize these risks for you so you understand the reward and you also understand the risks of being in this sector. And then we're going to go on and talk about some ways that you can invest in the sector to mitigate some of those risks. So developing a drug takes a long time, and to get it through the approval process is really the, I guess, the, the maze that the pharmaceutical companies have to, have to maneuver. And of course, with litigation, especially the, the cradle of drug innovation is still the U.S. And of course, it is the litigious capital of the world. And so the FDA or Food and Drug Administration has, because litigation costs have gone up so much, they become a lot tougher on setting standards. There's phase one, phase two, phase three trials they have to go through to get through the approval process. But they made it much tougher to bring a new compound to market. This means that fewer drugs are getting into the hands of the consumer, which means lower profits on the part of the pharmaceutical companies. Okay, so now let's talk about how high about the high costs. It, it's and if you don't know if it's going to be approved, you're putting a lot of money on the table and really rolling the dice here. The average cost of bringing a new drug to market today is $2.6 billion. And because of litigation and the more rigor they have to put into the testing process, that's an increase of 145% over 2003. So costs have gone up dramatically to bring new drugs into the marketplace. So 
Partly, that has hurt the innovation process because if you're a CEO of a drug company and you're looking at how fast costs are rising and typically a runway to get a drug to, uh, through all the tests might be 8 to 12 years, you're looking at two, spending $2.6 billion with a low assurance that this might actually make it, that some drugs that might have promise in the lab but you don't know if they're going to make it through the, the medical process or you don't know how profitable they're going to be, that stuff gets moved to the side and, and drug companies are focusing on things that will give them profits. And of course, that hurts everybody because promising procedures and compounds that could come to market just aren't getting there because there isn't enough profit in it and uh, the litigation costs are just too high. That must keep people awake at night. I mean, when you when you put it in that in that scenario, looking that far out down the runway and the costs that are involved and the costs keep escalating, that's uh, that's pretty dramatic stuff. Let's talk about the probability. The success rate for a cancer drug making it through phase three drug trials is five point one percent. It's staggering how few, you know, five out of a hundred actually make it, or 5.1 out of 100, if you want to put it a little bit differently. And the success rate of all drugs, excluding cancer drugs, making it through phase three drug trials is only 11.9%. And so here again, with costs so high and success rates so low, it's really, you're, you're banking on getting a block drop buster out of all the research that you're doing. You're hoping that uh, one or two. And of course, uh, according to Lehman Biopharma, only two out of 10 drugs earn back their development costs. So this is a high cost, high risk business, to say the least. Well, and I, you know, we think of, as I say, all the television advertising that we've seen over the years, the one that, that pops to mind for obvious reasons, because they spent so much money marketing, it was Viagra. I think they probably got their money back on that one, didn't they? Viagra is one of the most popular drugs out there, well, obviously for, for a lot of reasons, but typically when you listen to the Viagra ads, it in a guarded way, uh, you know, you see these people holding hands and it, it, it you, you kind of get what the, it, the, theme, the gist is, yes. yeah, the gist is behind this, but they talk about 10, they spend about 10 seconds in the one minute talking about the positive aspects, and then they spend the next 50 seconds telling you that- you But might, the side effects. Yeah, you might get three heads and uh, <laughs> come back in the next life as a dragon or something. So uh, they're very conscious of the, the, the litigation, and of course, they spend a huge amount on, on advertising. You know, just talking about litigation, uh, I remember one of the first big positions I took in a drug stock, and that was Merck, and that was way back 20 years ago. And one morning, the news broke that their blockbuster drug, which was Vioxx. Oh boy, I remember oh, this. Oh yeah, it caused an increase in heart attacks and strokes in people who took it. Now, I know uh, a number of physicians who were saying, that's unfortunate because Vioxx was generally one of the best treatments for arthritic pain uh, and the extra, this, the extra risk was probably worth taking because such a small percentage of the population actually experienced a heart attack or stroke because of it. Anyways, 
When the news broke the next morning, the stock dropped 27% overnight, and you were just sitting there with your jaw dropped. Eventually, there was 27,000 lawsuits that were filed over this thing, and the company ended up with a legal tab of about $4.8 billion. And so litigation is something that you never know. It'll break one morning, and if you own a singular stock, you'll sit there with your mouth open as the flies buzz in and out, watching the ticker as this thing goes down, 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 down. So litigation is one of those hidden dangers that you really never know, even through the rigors of phase one, phase two, and phase three trials, companies that have made it through, generally, even they, after all the rigorous testing, can end up being blindsided by, by unexpected medical side effects. Let's talk about, <clears throat> excuse me, another area that came up, and this is government legislation. I recall this story here, that the CEO of a pharmaceutical company who raised the price of the drug, what was it, 5,000% or some ridiculous number like that, and tried to get away with that. Yeah, and of course, it affected a very <clears throat> politically vocal part of the population. The drug was called uh, Daraprim, and it's a 60-year-old AIDS medication. And of course, the CEO of Turing Pharmaceuticals cranked the price on this up by 5,000% to the point where a lot of people couldn't afford it. And of course, this really agitated government lawmakers enough to pull him into a congressional hearing over it. And he and others were uh, accused of price gouging. And this seems to be the catalyst that is really pushing U.S. lawmakers into seriously talking about putting caps, price caps on drugs. And I think this is legislation that, you know, you look at the Republicans and the Democrats, and they don't get along very well, obviously. They oh, can't, that's an understatement. Yeah. yeah, they can hardly agree on anything. But this is one area where they seem to agree that this egregious raising the prices on drugs to make it unaffordable, especially a 60-year-old AIDS medication, this has been paid for many over, times over. Oh, yeah. many, many times over. And to do that to people... Uh, I think the government, this is going to galvanize the government into putting price caps on some of these drugs, which obviously is a risk because it'll affect the price and the profitability of some of these companies that are selling these products. So before we get to talking about uh, how we might want to get invested into this sector, let's talk about the one final, I don't know if it's a stumbling block or one thing that obviously that you have to consider is, is patents on these drugs. They have a period of time where they are exclusive and you pay more. Then when they become generic, then the price drops. So from the time a patent's filed, you've got 25 years. And generally it takes eight years, sometimes even more, before the drug works its way through the approval process. This gives you 17 years in some jurisdictions, and some I think as low as 12 years, to actually rush this drug into commercial production and make some profits off of it because when the patent expires, that's when the generics can get in there. And of course, they always cut the price to the bone and profitability goes with it. So a drug company doesn't have a long runway for profitability. They have to seize the moment and push these drugs as hard as they possibly can because there's a very definite time window.
Okay, so make make hay while the sun shines, if you will. So we're going to do another show on this. We're going to do another show on how we would want to look at investing in the pharmaceutical sector, and that'll be on our next episode. But before we go today, let's take a look at a couple of questions, Ron, that came to us. One from Oscar. I, I hold the above bonds, the Sherrod International Corporation Senior Unsecured Notes in an RSP. They were recently downgraded. Originally, they were double B. Now they're down to triple C, and the value has dropped. Uh, so he wants to know what you're, what you're thinking on this. Should he hold or should he sell? Well, Sherrod has had a problem because one of Sherrod's biggest assets, in fact, their prime asset now, is their operations in Cuba, which include uh, nickel and cobalt production and also oil production. And Trump, which is called Tariff Man now, yeah. has said that uh, he doesn't like what's going on in Venezuela. And so he's embargoed oil in Venezuela, in seized bank accounts, done all kinds of things there. And anybody that tries to help Venezuela is also part of that embargo. Anyways, Cuba has had very close economic relationships with Venezuela for for years, and they've just flat out said, no, we're not going to abandon our friend um, that we've had such close economic ties with for, for 50 years. So what has happened is because the United States has turned the screws down on Cuba and Sherrod produces a lot of energy there, the Cuban government now has no money to pay Sherrod. So Sherrod has racked up this big bill that's owed to them by the Cuban government. They don't know exactly when they're going to get paid back. So they've been involved in a cash flow crunch. And as a result, their bonds, which are, don't forget, triple B is, triple B minus actually is the lowest part or the lowest grading that allows you to be what's called investment grade. But you've got triple A, double A, single A, triple B, and that goes triple B plus, triple B, triple B minus, then double B, double B plus, double B minus, and then you're down to single B, and then you drop into the C's, which that is hold your nose investing at its best. So these bonds, when you sent in the email, were 60 cents on, we're trading at 60 cents on the dollar. Now they're between 20 and 30 cents on the dollar. So I'm not even sure that you're going to be able to sell these things. The company's asset rich and uh, the stock is currently at 20 cents. It's one tenth of its book value. In other words, the value of its assets. So if you can get out and you bought this in a taxable account, which you didn't, this is in your RSP, I would have said sell it. But at the point you're at right now, because I'm not even sure the liquidity, whether you'll even be able to sell this, if you could sell it, um, you know, you certainly could take a loss. But at this point, when you're only looking at 20 cents on the dollar left, um, I think I would wait for a rally because if they do go under, I think you might be able to recover a little bit more from where it is right now. And uh, so I think I would hold my nose because there's so little left here to sell. All right. Well, let's hope, uh, let's hope for a turnaround for that particular gentleman. One other question here from Jennifer. I know a friend that owns Bellatrix. Would it be a good idea to average down for this person? I think the reverse stock of split of 12. I'm not quite sure what she means there. 
Well, it, uh, they took 12 old shares. They gave you one new one. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. When you do a, a reverse split, it's never very good. If you take 12 stocks and you end up getting one, <laughs> it's to try and get the value pumped up enough so that there's, there's actually a price that's high enough to make it worth trading. So uh, Bellatrix, BXE, is literally down... 90% in the last year, just the last year. The company took on too much debt at the top of the uh, oil and gas boom in 2012, 13, and 14, and they've been going through a complicated restructuring since then. Uh, the stock, frankly, still has a lot of debt, and what I don't recommend doing is after you've taken a beating like this of putting more good money into something that still has some major hurdles ahead of it. I would say at this point, you're better off selling it using what proceeds you have, especially if you bought this in a cash account, you can at least get a capital loss. Then take the money and buy yourself something in the, if you want exposure to the energy space, buy something in the international part of the market, something like a Royal Dutch or a British Petroleum or an Exxon, where you've got global exposure. In Canada, you still have all these political problems here, you know, pipelines, uh, government that's so openly antagonistic to energy. So invest elsewhere where prices are higher. I mean, Brent crude typically trades $10 higher than West Texas Intermediate. In places in Europe, in places in, in Asia, you're getting five, six, seven, eight dollars per thousand cubic feet of natural, natural gas, gas, right? Yeah. We're here, you're getting 260 now. So invest in some of the international companies that pay good dividends of five, six percent and wait for the political climate here to get better is what I would do. All right, there you go. Some sage advice from the financial coach, Ron Hebert. If you have a question, remember you can reach us at the cfcw.com website. It'll come to the Making Money Show inbox, and we'd be happy to answer them in future episodes. Back the next time to talk about how we can get into the pharmaceutical sector, and we'll have that advice for you on the next installment of Making Money. Thanks for joining us. The information presented is derived from sources believed to be reliable. This material is presented for information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Before acting on any investment information, a person should seek advice from an investment professional. The presenters may or may not hold positions in the securities discussed on this show and will not be responsible for any losses sustained from acting on this information.